Welcome to Season 4, Episode 24 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host Ben, joining me today is Michael Fitzgerald. Michael is an author and his most recent book is Late and is out now from Transit Lounge. Welcome to the show, Michael. Oh, a pleasure being here. Thanks, Ben. You're joining me from beautiful Sydney in between Ballara and Double Bay, let's say. Um, tell us about life in Sydney. Well, Sydney's, um, Sydney, I, I've really been here about 10, 20, 25 years now. Sorry, I'm just counting back. But I think Sydney for me has always been, you go through love-hate relationships with it. Um, and with my previous books, I could see myself edging further and further away from it. My first book was to do with the Pacific Ocean. My second book was sort of on the outskirts of Paris. And then, of, and then during COVID, where we were all in lockdown, I was faced by this, um, I, I was kind of forced to get to know Sydney in a, in a different sort of way and I, it was it was like a it was like a love affair for me discovering a particular part of Sydney where this book is set uh, around the cliffs of Dover Heights um, and discovering um, discovering Sydney also through through um, the eastern suburbs um, and also through I guess the, the the aspects of Judaism that that inhabit the eastern suburbs and seeing Sydney very differently, um, and and yeah, my, my sense of the city has has been transformed in writing this book, um, and and I guess I can thank you know those horrible lockdown months that we all experienced, but I think it 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 definitely sometimes you need to go away from a place to understand it better, but I think actually just being here and walking. Uh, I don't drive, um, and I just walked up and down those cliffs where the where the apartment is set, uh, where the, the novel is set in an apartment block. Um, and yeah, that's my, my my sense of Sydney has been transformed. I have been um, uh, pleasantly um, and spiritually um, awakened to, to to Sydney. I spent the first lockdown here in Melbourne, which was absolute fucking hell and spent the second lockdown in Sydney which was surprisingly refreshing and I did really renew my joy for Sydney and my love for Sydney because you know I used to go on a coastal walk for my lunch break for an hour every day instead of being stuck in flat boring Melbourne so yes I I do I I see how COVID can reignite your love for a place like Sydney oh no it's it's totally true and um and yeah, so each each well actually did manage to uh, we can probably get to it at, at, at some some point later in our conversation, but also to actually a huge thrill for me was to I'd I'd always looked at this particular apartment block on the cliffs of Dover Heights, which is designed by Harry Seidler back in the early sixties, and uh, during COVID, um, it was an amazing um, opportunity or. Um, it was just this offering to me. A friend of mine uh, needed someone to cat sit, and it was in this particular block of flats. And so I managed to spend two weeks in that in this particular apartment, looking after these two cats. And um, and for me, that's that was also part of my lockdown experience. And also um, later in lockdown, when things had started to loosen up a little bit, and that was pretty much the start of the book as well. Amazing. Okay. I want to get onto that very soon because I want to talk way more about that. But before we do that, I want to speak about you and your books and your background. But first start, you grew up in Melbourne, but you worked pretty heavily in media, uh, especially in Sydney, for magazines like Who and Time. Do you want to tell us a bit about your background in media and, and just growing up into this world of kind of literature and writing? Yeah. So I started, I actually started as a cadet reporter down in Melbourne. I was at a failed business paper called Business Daily, straight out of university. I, I, I um, was studying arts and law and I gave up um, my studies to become a cadet. And then the newspaper closed down after, um, I think it was only a month or two. 
And then I got a cadetship at the Herald and Weekly Times and then worked my way through um, a sort of cub reporter, police rounds. I was actually one of the first, actually, I was on a police round the night of the Wall Street um, ambush, oh, wow. you know, the killings, um, which was pretty, pretty scary for a young journalist. Um, and um, I'm not, I wasn't really a sort of, you know, thick-skinned uh, crime reporter, but I did move on to more sort of lifestyle journalism after that mm. and uh, made my way up to to Sydney eventually to be on the launch of Who Weekly. And I started off as a fact checker and we were always asked to, um, uh, to do home takes with celebrities, so a lot of actors, um, you know, I'm just thinking back to the 90s, you know, people like Elle, McF Elle, Elle McPherson, Kate Blanchett, Nicole Kidman, people like that, I had to interview and sort of ask, you know, their age or their, mm -hmm. the name of their pet or, um, or or be with them in their home environment. It was always interesting as much as I uh, was, you know, fascinated by their acting craft, but also that sense of discomfort of being on their home territory and having to ask kind of personal questions. And, um, and so that, that, I think plays into a little bit with my 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 new book, but uh, so then I worked my way through uh, Who Weekly, moved to Time Magazine, which um, at that point Time Magazine had an Australian version, uh, South Pacific version, and uh, I was there for around ten years. And in the last probably dozen or so years, I've been um, working more in the visual arts area. So I've been working more at um, editing, I edited Art in Australia and uh, most recently Art Monthly. And so my visual arts um, um, specialty, um, you know, was really honed, particularly the last 10 years. But yes, but I did begin as a fact checker on Who Weekly. Um, so I, I guess I guess my interests in journalism embrace both both sides and also yeah time magazine i did have to do some pretty pretty serious uh, feature writing and um and travel stories and things like that as well hmm. so how do you move from that world into the world of more literary writing yeah well i i think i've always i've always um kind of dabbled at at, at um you know short stories i've always written i've i i was fairly late to get published in on uh, in, any of my literary writing I did um it was it was something I always aspired to I guess as a journalist it's always trying it's hard finding that that sort of space um that space in your head to to um uh, to kind of leave that leave all of that behind and to try and find your voice and it really took I think when I was at Time magazine and traveling into the Pacific I every year they'd send us to um explore a particular island or region in the Pacific and, and one year they sent me to Samoa um, where Robert Louis Stevenson um, mm. spent his last few years and for some reason that was one of I, w I was kind of completely seduced by by Samoa and the idea of um, not just of a Scottish writer that had, that had um, decided to um, spend his last few years on earth in this island in the middle of the Pacific but also, since his death, Samoa in turn has sort of almost colonised his words and his writings and taken on, it's taken a whole new life um, mm. in itself that, that they were, um, his works were translated into Samoan fairly early. And, I'd, and uh, I just found it really fascinating that um, it was kind of reverse colonisation in, in, a, in a way with his work there and, um, and they do consider him almost as a, a, a Samoan, he was a friend of, of the independence movement. And, uh, and that was probably the, the, the germ of, a, of, of an idea that then later um, I worked at over probably 10 years. I, I mm. um, while I was still at Time magazine, it was in the back of my head. Then when I left to work in art publishing, I probably had a bit more space to think about um, exploring some of these literary ideas. And I was lucky enough to get a fellowship to Varuna in the mm. Blue Mountains and I was matched with a publisher, um, um, a quite, quite a 
quite a mainstream, um, um, I, prob I probably won't name them, um, but in the end they decided not to to publish my work. Um, they 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 thought it might have worked better as a as a memoir. They assumed that the the, the book about Robert Louis Stevenson Stevenson was was about me, mm -hmm. um, which which actually it wasn't. But um, but I thought okay. Um, and my mentor very um, handily suggested a few other publishers, and and one of them was Transit Lounge, and that's where mm -hmm. I've ended up um, publishing. I'm onto my third my third novel with them, mm -hmm. and. So I think it was through the mix of of working outside of journalism, um, in the visual arts, where it felt a much more open open environment for my imagination, and also Varuna, which is the, it, it's it's writing heaven when you get up there. Um, mm. I, don't, I don't know whether you've um, been. I've been to Varuna, but where in the Blue Mountains is it? It's in Katoomba. So okay. it's set up as a writer's house, um, mm. National Writer's House. And so at any given time, there's probably about six writers that are wow. working in this wonderful Art Deco house that Eleanor Dark bequeathed, um, oh, or her family bequeathed to the okay. nation. Yeah. Okay. I, know, I know what you mean now. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and so they have someone that comes in and cooks your dinner and mm. you have a stu dedicated studio and you're with with professional uh, writers at different stages in their career, mm. and it's just a very affirming, a very affirming moment where you're not quite sure whether you're, um, if you're serious about what you're doing, but you get that sense of affirmation. Hopefully, you know, if you mm. keep, keep keep at it. And um, my most recent book actually was a, a lot of it was written up there at at, at Varuna. I, I took um, uh, quite a number of weeks. Um, up there interrupted that I just got through quite, you know, mm. I, sort of, I sort of turned the corner of the, of the manuscript up there. So I think that mix of opportunity, perseverance, um, not being discouraged by, um, you know, knockbacks, uh, which happens, I, th I think, to probably the most, to most writers, except mm. for the, you know, the, the, the prodigiously gifted um, and, so I think that, that combination and having a place to write, yeah, and and then of course the subject. Mm. Amazing. Okay, I want to mention your previous books as well because you talked briefly about um, Pacific Room, which is the one that features Robert Louis Stevenson, and the second one is Pieta, which is about the La Pieta statue by Michelangelo. Mm. Um, do you want to yeah. just tell us briefly about those two books and writing them? Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking because uh, I was trying to work out what sort of links them all too. But I think yeah, the first one, Pacific Room, definitely came out of that idea of of Australia sort of almost turning its back on the Pacific and this mm. incredible um, sort of um, this. It, it, it's it's not just a body of water. It's it's this multiplicity of cultures that's out there that 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 I feel we turn our back on, and there's so much to learn. From and uh, so that first book was really as a, a non First Nations writer going there and through the story of Robert Louis Stevenson's life there, um, at, actually through um, the story set around uh, a portrait that's being painted of him by um, a true portrait that was painted by uh, an Italian painter called Nerli, and so through. The painting of this portrait, I explore his life there, um, and it is it is somewhat cross cultural. Um, it's probably something you know. I'm thinking back. You know, I probably would be hesitant to do now because of the world has changed. Mm. Um, but I I'm still very proud of what I what I achieved with that book, and it was really dipping into his ideas of psychology and the split person, you know, the dual personality of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And also mm. one of the characters in it um, is a, a Fafafine uh, Samoan uh, character who uh, was uh, born male, but has, um, has is, is um, in, it translates Fafafine as in, in the way of a woman. Mm. Um, and it's looking at that sort of cultural idea um of of kind of i suppose gender fluidity and also uh looking at at stevenson through through that lens as well which i, mm. I found quite interesting and um 
that was my first novel and Pieta was very much um um I think a book even though it was set in um for the most part in the outskirts of Paris the main character is an au pair working with a French family uh, but the story is, is uh, her name is Lucy the story is to do with her mother and the, and the life of her mother that she discovers um her mother was in Rome in the early 70s um and the the story becomes intertwined with um i um i use the um restoration of michelangelo's sculpture uh, la pieta that was vandalized in the early 70s i use that as a sort of a i guess a theme through the book of, between the, the the story of the mother and the daughter and the sort of damage um, um, that gets inflicted and then a sense of um, hopefully restoration. But it's also a book about Australia too, um, uh, uh, Pietar. It's quite, um, it has quite a, quite a few layers, um, especially um, um, it touches on um, where Lucy is, is working as, a, as an au pair. It touches on um, uh, Malmaison where, the, uh, where Empress Josephine brought Australian flora and fauna back to, to France. Um, so it touches on that side of things. Um, and then through the story of Lucy's mother, we, we, um, we discover um, this occurrence at St Peter's, which is what the story kind of um, leads up to. It starts and ends in St Peter's um, with this sculpture, and I use Michelangelo's sculpture as a way as, as a sort of medium to bring a mother and a daughter together, I guess. Um, and uh, that was my second novel, which I actually um, published in 2021 during during those difficult COVID moments. And then, mm. yes, and then, it, and then I was emancipated and to write my, my um, most recent novel, Late. Awesome. All right. Well, let's move on to Late because it's out now from Transit Lounge, who are just publishing so many great things. The book is set in the late 1980s in Vaucluse in Sydney. Your two central characters are Zelda Zonk and a young man who's called Daniel, and he gets locked out of his apartment and he's house-sitting in this apartment block, which is uh, designed by Harry Seidler, which we'll talk about soon. The novel takes place in one day. It's a Friday, and Zelda is preparing for a really special Shabbat dinner. Do you want to tell us a bit about your central protagonist and the setup of the book? Yes, so my central protagonist, um, Zelda, um, Zelda Zonk. Um, she is, um, I, uh, she, she's quite a, she's, I guess, um, just through her name conjures a sense of, of, of comedy, I guess, but also there's a sense of drama with her. Um, you, you do learn that she was, um, has escaped celebrity to, to come to Australia. Um, and her character, um, you also learn that, that she, um, converted to Judaism. Um, through her third marriage, um, third and last marriage, and in back in America, and so she's created a new life. It's probably two decades on in in Sydney, and she bought off the plan um, in an apartment building inspired by. Um, even though I, I don't I don't specifically mention him, um, it's inspired by Harry Seidler, and it's mm-hmm. you know he's the father of modernism in Australia, so. Um, so Zelda inhabits this apartment looking out at the Pacific and also looking looking back towards her birthplace of California. And so um, even though it's a day in her life, um, there is a lot of ebb and flow back and forth between her, her day. Um, um, I was about to say normal day in Sydney, but it's kind of an extraordinary day in Sydney. Um, and then her equally extraordinary former life back in California and then it's it's really through her meeting with her um the next door neighbor Daniel who's locked out of his apartment um who he he is house sitting next door and it's this sort of unlikely um friendship that 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 springs up between the two of them and um they pretty much spend the day and the evening together um and that's that that that's kind of the 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 that sort of forward thrust of the narrative um, and they discover um, similarities in their in their background they discover that they're both um, orphans mm. and both 
um, both both I guess uh, um, unresolved feeling feeling quite unresolved about their mothers and also their fathers and so there's quite a lot of discussion but there's also a lot of a lot of just kind of physical activity they cook and they walk and they catch ferry and they um, you know they they take vodka shots and they um, um, but also yeah there are also rituals and there's a, you know it's also a very significant day for Zelda as as we discover in terms of her um, in terms of her faith as well. Mm. I want to talk about the setting of the book. The apartment block where most of the book takes place is a it's a Sydney landmark. We know like as you said it's it's been designed by the famous architect Harry Seidler. I know the building very well because I used to work up the road from there. We grew up visiting this area a lot. It mm. sits on the cliffs, looks out to the ocean. Do you want to tell us about the setting of mm. the novel and also like this part of Sydney because we're in eastern Sydney. You can get in a ferry down at Rose Bay or Watson's Bay, go into the city. It's it's an unbelievably beautiful part of Sydney. Can you tell us about the setting and also about Harry Seidler? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a part of Sydney that I've always, you know, I've, I've probably known Bondi, obviously, very well, and, you know, Watson's Bay. Dover, But Dover Heights is sort of in between. It's just down the road from the Gap, which is a... Mm which is just across the road from, you know, Watson's Bay where you have fish and chips at Doyle's, but then the Gap has this, this you know, this kind of momentous gravitas because of, you know, the, the, the um, very tragic things that have happened there. It's also staggeringly beautiful, the cliffs mm. there, it's so dramatic. You get the sense that you're right on the edge of Sydney. You know, you can't go any further. And um, and it's, it's just an incredibly dramatic. Um, you can also... So what I love um, during lockdown, where I was discovering the cliffs of Dover Heights much better, I was. Um, you get a sense also of the, looking back towards the harbour that you're on, almost mm -hmm. like a peninsula, um, and you're caught between the harbour and the ocean, and so between these two kind of uh, watery states of Sydney, and um, but it's also traditionally, I I I, um, I believe, uh, you know, traditionally a, a, a Jewish area of Sydney too. So mm. it's also infused. Um, you know, you see synagogues, you see Jewish schools and colleges, uh, uh, you know, uh, Jewish bakeries, um, and it has this, um, you know, it has this other flavour of Sydney that perhaps people don't don't, you know, it, because it's sort of where it geographically where it is, um, perhaps not a lot of people beyond um, that area would would really know it very well. So mm. I was blessed to have um, to be able to uh, uh, flat sit there during COVID and and get to know it as much as I could, um, having not been brought up there. But it is an area of Sydney that I have just absolutely fallen in love with. But it, there's also a sense of um, a sort of cultural richness there, but also obviously things that have happened off the cliffs. Um, you know, it also has a dark history there and a tragic history because of, you know, it's a well-known um, suicide spot, uh, the Gap. And also um, further down in Bondi is, is where some of these um, quite horrific gay hate crimes during the 80s um, and perhaps earlier even um, and, and, and that went on through um, even into the 90s. Um, occurred so it for me um thinking about a sydney you know a sydney novel it did encapsulate quite a lot um and also gave me the option uh, or gave me the, the opportunity to discover um something about my city that i i had no idea about mm. and let's talk about harry seidler because oh, I think yeah, he's he's made so many iconic buildings in sydney there's one of the most famous ones is the MLC building. I think it is. Yes. Whatever it is in the in the city near Martin Place. There's so many buildings by Harry Seidler. Mm. He spent most of his life in Australia. And uh, there's so many buildings that he builds and inspired. But this mm. block of flats is, it's extraordinary because it's, it's kind of, in a way, it's bleak and beautiful. And it's kind of got that industrial coldness and this, mm. um, th there's a wonder to it as well. Like, especially where it's placed. But can you tell us oh, about Harry Seidler? Yeah, it's incredible. I was lucky enough to interview him when I was at Time magazine um, oh. back in the, probably the 90s. Um, mm -hmm. I think he'd had, he'd probably had a bit of a tough time 
um, earning the respect, which I, I think now he, he, you know, has justifiably. Um, but at that time, you know, there was that sense of, you know, brutalism was ascribed to his architecture uh, and, and that's that that sense of modernism that we now can appreciate for what it was for what it is um so I, I had the good fortune to interview him um he has or his his um his widow Penelope still runs the architecture business and um in uh, just around the corner from where Time magazine was so um I luckily had heard his whole life story he was born actually in austria and so it was during the, the world war the family moved to london and then on to canada where he was um, originally schooled and then ended up at black mountain um you know the incredible um school for modernism and then he um, winded up in australia where he i think one of his first houses he designed was for his mother rose based rose seidler house in uh kalara or warunga mm -hmm. incredible house that's still there that you know um is has been preserved for you know the nation and and then he slowly began building these key you know the emma the, the australia square probably you know mm -hmm. The key skyscraper in Sydney, um, with the revolving, you know, uh, restaurant on top, and then MLC MLC Centre, and then so he's a mix of residential and um, and and these incredible iconic skyscrapers in Sydney mm -hmm. um, that have a, a, a purity to them that is sort of unmatched, I think, and um, and I think I think he's still. You know, he, he's very much appreciated now, but I think he, he can only probably with time um, that appreciation can, can deepen. But I think um, this particular block of flats has um, has been altered. So um, apparently so that the balconies have been um, have been filled in, which so so it's, you know, apparently, according to Seidler and Associates, it's not recognized as a Seidler building anymore but it, it's mm -hmm. it, when you look at it it's no mistaking mm -hmm. it is his creation and there's another one I think in Tamarama um, around there that's uh, kind of similar in in spirit looking at uh, um, you know not not as dramatically on the cliff like in Vaucluse but mm -hmm. um but it is a building uh, the one in Vaucluse that I've always wanted to to um, explore inside, and I, I was so fortunate to to cat mind in there. And mm -hmm. it is you feel as when you're in there, you really feel as though you, you are in the weather. You know, if there's a storm or um, um, it's incredibly changeable. The the Pacific out there and the, the around the cliffs um, from sort of this calm um, to to kind of very scary where you feel as though you're in a boat um, mm. at, at sea and um, it is yeah it is a, I think it's a unique building for that for its location and um, and there's this remarkable photo by Max Depayne um, who took a photo of it in 1962 from right down at the bottom of the, the cliff looking up mm. at it and it's just it's like this it, it's like a beacon or a lighthouse or a it, it, it's it's so beautiful and it is um it is reproduced in in the book um with a blue wash through it mm. yeah i was just looking at the back of the book to see the photo it's a beautiful photo yes yeah one of the things about this spot as well is like you say it's, it's extremely rough because of where it is it's almost at sydney head basically mm. and um, one of the other features of this spot is that and when i was working there you could literally go out you know, and just watch whales from your balcony or from, mm. it is one of these spots that it's just an unbelievable spot. Oh, it's true. Yeah. I, um, you can see, well, obviously the, you know, Sydney Hobart goes past it. Mm. Um, there's this, um, just below the building, it, it used to be, um, I've had various stories. It used to, apparently there used to be a dairy there. Mm. Um, so there's this old stone wall that goes around the, um, around the apartment building and there's almost like a um a, just this sort of uh stone archway that leads down onto the point below the building and it's become one of those instagram moments mm. you know where 
where you'll you'll see um, tourists there having selfies of themselves down there. But apparently, it was quite quite tragic that someone um, I think it was probably um, a decade ago actually was was taking their photo there and actually backed right off and, and fell mm. to their death. Yeah. Unfortunately, because it is quite a perilous stretch mm. of coast too, um, and staggeringly beautiful. And and but you do need to keep your wits about you about yeah. you uh, uh, along there. And uh, mm. I want to ask you about the real identity of Zelda Zonk. Mm. I don't think this is much of a spoiler because for me, all the clues were given away really early in the book. But if you are scared of spoilers, turn off now. Head to the end of the podcast and listen to the rest, but um, we will reveal who Zelda Zonk is now because I think that's a really important part of this book and I really want to talk with you about it. Sure, yeah. You want to tell us about who she is, where yeah. this name came from, and also like some of the inspiration behind putting this iconic person in the book. Yeah, it's. I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what came first, but I... I um... I can remember back in the would have been the 1990s when I was at Time magazine and the Donald Spoto biography came out on Marilyn Monroe, and I'm not sure at at, at that time to what extent I appreciated uh, Marilyn Monroe's um, film career, but I, at that point we were all fixated on her on her death, conspiracy mm -hmm. theories about what had happened. You know, presidents and FBI and wiretapping and all whatnot seemed to consume everyone's attention about her. And but this seemed a very well balanced biography, and it it, it talked about her as an important film actress, um, as a person uh, that was always striving to be the best version of herself. Um, and there were many versions of her. Um, um, she she was born in California, but she um, you know, trained with Chekhov's uh, nephew, I think it was, you know, in acting school in California, later married Arthur Miller, converted to Judaism, uh, loved read, you know, loved reading. She had a, a library of over 400 books. Mm. Uh, but Donald Spoto's um, biography, and there are many others, um, but his just seemed to uh, be a bit more respectful and, and actually... Um, as well as putting her death down to a, a kind of tragic um, accident, um, uh, which may or may not be the, the case, we will never know. Uh, but he also made me just more curious about her life as a as a uh, intellectual. You know, mm -hmm. I, I of course she is a you know uh, seen as a, a dumb blonde and a sex you know a sex symbol, which in part her career was built on that premise. But I. I was fascinated by her intellect and her her quest to to um, you know constantly um, she was just constantly curious about the world and um, and I, I I must admit I must have always um, you know I would have seen um, at, even back then I would have seen her comedic roles um, which are you know so wonderful but then I became more interested in her. Um, her life as a serious, uh, a serious actor wanting to to do kind of serious roles, and um, and it just really intrigued me. But um, I did know from Donald Spoto that her her persona when she um, wanted to be incognito was Zelda Zonk, and mm. I just and I I thought it was remarkable because that was the first name that she chose for herself. Mm. Uh, Marilyn Monroe was foisted on her by the studios. Um, she, you know, her her real name was always contested because her birth certificate name had a different spelling to her, you know, Norma Jean uh, uh, Doherty. Um, mm. There were different spellings of her name. Um, it was almost as though she had no name, but she the name she gave herself was Zelda Zonk, and I thought it revealed a lot about, A, her sense of humour. I think it's quite a funny name, but it's also... Um, um, I guess it touches on her interest, I think, in Judaism, because I think Zelda is a Hebrew name. Yeah, or... so generally speaking, yeah, it's been a, it's, I think it's a traditional German name, but I think in, German, in general, yeah. like now it's, um, yeah, like very well, like it's definitely a, 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 a recognised Jewish name nowadays. Mm. Mm. So I thought that, I thought that was um, incredibly uh, revealing about her, 
and I'm I'm not sure. So so Donald Spoto's biography sat on my bookcase for a couple of decades, and you know I've watched Marilyn's films, um, been interested in her 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 filmography, um, which it's hard not to be when you. Um, she was incredibly prolific, but in her mm. last ten years, she she really only made a, a handful of films that she was absolutely a perfectionist about. Um, but I I thought um, so. I guess this is where where the Zelda Zonk meets the Harry Seidler apartment building mm. meets Sydney. Um, I was I. I I had I had this very strong sense of 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 wanting to write about this particular building, this particular of someone being there, um, and I think I th I'm not sure how it happened, um, um, but um, visiting the apartment building and meeting some of the people there, and I realised um, it, it, it's a home for very diverse people. Um, mm. Um, and it just got me, it, it, for some reason, Zelda Zonk just kind of landed in my imagination there. And um, I just, I just thought, well, what if she hadn't, what if she hadn't died? She just moved mm. to Sydney in 1962, which is when this apartment building was built. And mm. um, almost as though this building embodied her. Um, and um, as a, as a, as a figure and also as an iconic and also as a queer iconic figure, she, you know, there, there's all these um, all these ideas around Marilyn. Uh, have you seen Have you seen uh, Mulholland Drive, the film? Yeah, Because yeah. they sort of because I think David Lynch was asked what that film was about, and he mm. said that film is it's about Marilyn Monroe. That's what that mm. film is, and she embodies California and and that particular part of um, uh, the mountain range where Mulholland Drive is. Um, and I just I just had this idea of her sort of embodying Sydney, which um, which she very happily does in this book and seems very at home. And mm. it was also a perfect place for her to take on uh, Zelda Zonk's um, Jewish persona and to explore that side of her character because she... Even her, even though her marriage to Arthur Miller sadly ended, um, um, it was a very um, fruitful marriage creatively, but it it, it tragically ended um, with a bit of rancor. But um, she never um, uh, renounced her her conversion, and I mm. thought um, this was the perfect perfect site for her to explore this 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 other side. And she, you know. In, in my imagination, she definitely came to life in 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 this apartment building in Vaucluse, and um, and also it was the perfect place for her to also confront some of her fears. Uh, so what happens during the day? She for the last couple of decades she has has lived um, as a, um, a writer, which is something that she also um, aspired to. Uh, back in New York and Los Angeles, and so she's lived as a writer, um, um, wearing her her dark wig in mm. Sydney as Elder Zonk. And so, but during the day, um, a few thing dramatic things happen where she has to reveal herself and she has to act, which is something that she um, she has to kind of overcome her fears to um, to um, to step in and um, and. Yeah, put herself out there and reveal who she is, and I and 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 that's kind of the major turning point in the book. Mm. One of the other things I want to explore with you, like you said, with Zelda, she does adopt a lot of the more observant Jewish characteristics. She's got two sets of dishes. She's preparing Shabbat dinner throughout this book. She's even worried about the Sydney Arab, which at the time didn't exist, but like you know but it's there as like this I guess a, a trait to show how observant you know she's trying to be she doesn't always quite get the details right but it's such an interesting part of this alter ego and you know obviously you know we know she converted when she married Arthur Miller but I want to explore that a little bit further about I guess putting these Jewish aspects in the book mm. well for me um for, for me, someone who was raised, um, I wasn't, I wasn't christened, but my my background would have been uh, Catholic, and 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 I've I realised even Pieta, um, 
um, in my previous book, um, the character of Lucy, I realized now, um, had an interest in the Kabbalah. I just, mm. because of Madonna, mm -hmm. basically, she's a young au pair. And so I realized even at that stage, I was kind of intrigued um, more through that idea of celebrity, probably. But with this book, I actually, um, I actually uh, did quite a bit of research about Marilyn about her conversion, um, and she take she took it incredibly seriously. Um, and you look in her library there, um, which is documented, um, quite a number of um, serious uh, uh, texts are in there, and some of her um, home items. And you know, she had a menorah and. Um, mm various various things in her house right up until the end. Um, um, but for me, I guess that was a way um, a way also to explore um, a, a more spiritual side uh, to to the Marilyn Monroe that we perhaps don't know and to um, and for me it was it, it was also a wonderful excuse to get to know um, Judaism a lot um, a lot closer you know I, I, I I have Jewish friends, but I've never actually, I, I don't think until I researched this book, I don't think I've been into a synagogue um, or spoken at length with rabbis or read, read Jewish texts. You know, I feel as though sort of Jewish culture has infused me through literature and film mm. um, in so many other ways, but it was just a, a wonderful um, opportunity for me to experience that and to, to, but also experience it through the eyes of Zelda too, as someone who probably um, by choice had had converted but hadn't got everything right. Um, so, uh, for instance, um, if 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 Marilyn had come to Australia, or in this book she does, um, she perhaps would have gone to a more liberal um, synagogue perhaps rather than the synagogue that the she goes synagogue, to. Yeah. Um, but but I wanted her to go to that that mm. that synagogue because it was it, it's such an amazing mm. building such a beautiful um historic part of sydney so so i did sort of poetically take a few liberties um as you mentioned with the roof um at that point hadn't hadn't been um uh, built around the eastern suburbs um but for me uh just discovering and what what became so poignant for me was I guess finding a connection to Judaism um, and a sense of of the honouring of 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 the deceased and and the dead, and for me it was a way for me to honour my my memory or my to honour to honour uh, Marilyn in that way. I don't mm -hmm. think she has been respected or honoured and been given. Um, her her, um, her her proper due her proper respect in that way and and I thought through some of the the rituals that I discovered about um, you know about the condition and 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 those uh, rituals of mourning and remembrance and and even even um, even uh, Jewish burial um, which mm -hmm. is incredibly respectful of the of the of of the body um, all of these things that. Marilyn was never accorded as as mm. in, in her in her in her passing. Um, it was a way for me, I guess, to transfer onto her as well, and um, and 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 I think that's what really excited me in in my imagination, and also as someone that I I, I realized how deeply I respected um, do respect her, and also. Mm. Uh, discovering through Judaism how that respect is um, manifested through these through these traditions, um, and I found a way to honour her through that, and um, I feel really um, honoured that I was able to do that in my in my in my kind of uh, 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 cookie way <laughs> through this book. I was talking to Anna Funda recently about her um, book about Orwell's wife. And I think in that book, she really reconstructs this character and um, she makes her come alive again. And for me, this made Marilyn come alive again. It made me feel like she was this beautiful, um, intelligent, highly read, highly intellectual, um, you know, really respectful and, you know, and religious person. And, and um, her relationship with Daniel, I think, throughout the book is amazing. But I felt like you made her come alive for me again. 
And I so wish this book were true because I would just, like, can you imagine if Marilyn Monroe, you know, was in her, you know, let's say, well, now she'd be obviously a bit older, but, like, walking around Sydney in the 80s um, and just, yeah, I I think for me anyway, you've you've made her live for me. So Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, I sort of, I, I, I guess you have to suspend your disbelief and mm-hmm. and I guess it's um, in that sense um, sort of wishing wishing it could be true and I guess that's what I instilled into this book because um, in a sense, in a, in a sense she, and I guess what the book is that she, she, she hasn't died really, you know, mm-hmm. it's sort of our memory of her that keeps her alive. Um, and you know, every every time we watch her films or read um, and uh, read her writings, which which was the other discovery uh, that came with my research, was reading you know, um, some of her poems and some of her mm. jottings and diary entries. And incredible, incredible voice uh, that I discovered, and that was really my way in. Um, there was a book that came out. Um, probably a dozen years ago called Fragments and it was her unpublished writings um, even some of her recipes and poetry that was never published or dated and so for me that was my way in and I think Mm. that's probably if if I've managed to try and um, capture her voice I think that's what did it for me was finding her writing voice and Mm. I realized it was actually um, quite gifted in, in in that regard. Um, many considered she wasn't disciplined enough to be, you know, a true poet. But you know, she did have quite a remarkable film career, keeping her a bit distracted. And then, um, but I'm I'm glad you think that. I, I um, for me, it's when you're writing a book like that, it's it's that 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 hope that kind of keeps you going. Um, that that that. That what you're uh, creating is is alive, and so if, if you felt mm. that she was alive, that's that's kind of what what I what I'd hoped all, all the way along. Brilliant. We haven't really talked much about Daniel's story in the book, but one of the aspects that comes up through his story is this fascinating kind of spree of gay hate crimes that happened in the eastern suburbs during this period. But and these they, they do come up briefly in the book, but I feel like they kind of they they serve as like a dark backdrop to the novel as well. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to just talk about those and, and including that kind of aspect in the book? Yeah, so um, I, I think probably it was, um, uh, it's come to all of our, you know, awareness in the last, probably in the last decade. You know, there's been a number of um, um, inquiries, books uh, written. I think Greg Callahan's book in particular mm-hmm. was the one that opened my eyes to to this series of uh, series of crimes, and and so they, they were particularly active around the um, uh, mid to late eighties, where where a particular a, a, a couple of um, gay beats in in and around Bondi, where where men uh, uh, either disappeared or bodies were found and and um, police investigations which are still being looked at you know for whatever reason um, the thought that these men had committed suicide when it, when when now we realize it was a, a systematic series of, of, of murders um, gay hate uh, crimes and um, so, so this part of Sydney, it's not really hasn't really been talked about, um, but it's a, it's a part of history that clings on to this incredible iconic um, part of Sydney. So it's this, it's sort of, it's the dark side of Sydney. Um, you know, it's it, it's sort of that. Um, it, it sort of helps express, you know, the, the split personality of Sydney, I guess, too. That we we look at the beach culture, but this the flip side of the beach. Culture is this um, is this unfortunate history uh, that clings onto these cliffs along um, you know from Bondi, um, and I, I sort of I sort of use a bit of poetic license, bring it closer to Dover Heights, but even mm-hmm. but even I think Dover Heights, you know, it, it was um, at the same time there were these um, these. Uh, Groups of 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 young young men um, who um, you know went under certain names um, that uh, you know proud 
crowd the neighbourhoods around, you know, from Bondi right through. Um, and, you know, it's never it's it's never been proven, but but there does seem to be a link um, between the, the the activities of these these groups of teenage um, young men and these these crimes that occurred, and so um, it, it's it's something of a backdrop to the novel, but it's also it's also a point in the book where um, uh, Daniel. My my character is sort of pulled into this 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 story, and uh, Zelda um, Zelda um, towards the end of the book um, has to has to reveal who she is and and mm -hmm. has to act, um, um, and that 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 kind of you know without giving away too much that that is sort of the the the, the climax to the book. But um, I, and I I hoped I hadn't. Trivialize, trivialize that that part of history in Sydney, and um, you know, it, 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 I don't try and be flip with it, but um, but it is um, it, it's sort of there, and it's also it sort of touches on. I guess it also touches on Marilyn Monroe's uh, role as a as a queer icon as well. Mm -hmm. So I think I, I think in a weird in a weird sort of way, it, it it does it does kind of roll into 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 the same narrative, and um, as readers will discover, um, and and it feels fairly natural that she um, um, that she has to yes she she has to has to she has to be Marilyn in the mm. end. Congratulations on the book! I think it's just amazing. Oh, oh thank um, you. So much. Yeah, I want to ask you. In terms of writing, do you move on to something next or is this something that you're going to take a while to move on to your next project? Yeah, it's interesting because um, with Pieta, for instance, I can remember by the time the book came out, I was already thinking about what I would be up to. I think I'd already started a short story that then led to my book late. Mm -hmm. um, but with this one, um, it still feels, I still feel I haven't quite let go of it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the book feels finished and and it feels you know I'm very very proud of the book but I don't know it's still with me and um I haven't quite moved on from it yet and um and I think it's going to take um maybe it's it, there's I don't think there's a sequel but or maybe there is but um but yeah I something hasn't quite replaced it yet in my in my imagination and I think it might just take um you know right Writing some more short stories, or um, originally this book, um, I wanted to do a, a set of short stories on the idea of sense memory, which was which then brought me to to the story of Marilyn um, and acting, um, and sense memory is a big part of her um, um, her acting technique, and um, maybe it's just going to take um, heading up to Veruna again and just having a bit of um, um, Without, without a particular, um, you know, um, end result in in mind, and just mm -hmm. um, just just playing um, with with some ideas. But yeah, it's unusual. I have I normally do have something, you know, sort of on the horizon. But um, hopefully, but this book kind of dropped really quickly for me, and I'm just um, I think you just have to have faith. Um, you know, apparently I've never written poetry, but. Up at Varuna, I met quite a lot of poets, and they say, you know, when a poem drops, you know, it happens very quickly, and you just have to go with it. And I just, um, so I've got a feeling now that maybe, maybe that might happen again with a with a new idea, and I, I will just have to kind of go with it. Brilliant. All right, let's move on to your gateway books. What were some of the books that opened the world of literature for you? Um, well, a few actually. I do touch on it um, in a way. This book, um, I do manage to weave in some of my gateway books. Um, there's ones like um, uh, as as you know, my early twenties. I I loved um, mainly American literature. So writers like Truman Capote, mm. Tennessee Williams, um, also people like Carson Colors. And I realise now, subsequently, these three writers that I've just mentioned all were you, Marilyn. Um, <laughs> friends of Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. But if, so, in a way, it, it's uh, I can sort of see a pattern there. Um, but definitely American literature, um, in a way, in a way, um, 
And, uh, you know, it touches, I've only recently come to Ulysses through doing research for this book because Marilyn um, uh, is very famously photographed reading Ulysses mm. in New York. Um, and like her, I just like to sort of read it very slowly, you know, just you know, sentences at a time. So I'd say I'd say those American um, and, and people like also um, Patricia Highsmith. Um, I realise there is a sort of American queer sort of thing happening there um, in retrospect, but mm. also um, uh, they would probably be my gateway gateway writers. Um, 20th century, um, a sense of, yeah, a, a sense of um, things under the surface, but also being able to write in a very paired back um, kind of elegant way. Um, I, of course, love English literature as well, but it's it, it's perhaps a bit more kind of cerebral or, um, yeah, I like the sort of visceral nature of American literature, I think. Mm. Okay, excellent. I want to ask you what books are you currently reading or have you recently enjoyed or are you looking forward to at the moment? Oh, right. Well, at the moment I've been... Um, I've been reading, actually, I've been reading some of my publisher's books. So um, mm. I just finished reading Gretchen uh, Gretchen Sherm's book, The Crying Room. Yeah. Um, and I, I enjoyed that. There's um, the elements of that book. Um, I just, I, I actually uh, had the great um, um, experience to meet Gretchen the other day um, and we were talking and there were certain stylistic elements in her book that I um um had tried to do in my book um just uh to do with the strike strike through that appears mm. in her in her book um and a few stylistic things like that i enjoy i enjoyed the um this the sense of swing between brief and and comedy in that book too um and uh, also Gregory Day, another Transit Lounge uh, novelist, with, he wrote this um, this amazing, sprawling, almost sort of old-fashioned kind of book called um, The Bell of the World. Mm. Bell of the World, I think, quite poetic mm. and effusive and, um, and um, a sort of book I'm not used to sort of reading, and I, I just loved it, um, and it was very... Um, yeah, it was a, a kind of a almost sort of mannered and and operatic, and um, you know we're all told to be so sort of restrained and pared back and minimalist these days. It was it was such a pleasure, and uh, they're my two two most recent um, books. And of course, for my work, I, work, I still work in the visual arts um, at a museum here in Sydney, and so there's always art books and. Um, mm. And I think that's a nice way to, you know, for instance, photography books or something. Sometimes, uh, just looking at images, I I I, I find very um, um, sustaining and restoring. You know, especially um, in my day to day job as an editor, where I'm just looking, you know, line editing. Sometimes mm -hmm. I just need to look an image, an image, and and kind of uh, relax my brain in that way. What museum do you work at? I'm at the, um, I've just started in the publishing area at the Powerhouse Museum. So, oh, lovely. yeah, so it's just going through a huge um, redevelopment at Parramatta. They're building a new flagship yeah. museum there, and I'm working out of their um, older uh, museum at Piemont. Yeah, Piemont. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, quite an exciting time where, um, where you know, a, a period of great change for the museum. So, um, mm. That's also sort of taking a lot of my attention at the moment. But also the museum's just opened a, a show called 1001 Objects that Leo Schofield helped curate. And so mm. um, all these objects in the, in the museum which go from the applied sciences to the applied arts are incredibly inspiring and and, and I wouldn't be surprised um, if not, not explicitly but, but the life of the museum is so inspiring for writing too in all shapes mm. and, and forms. So um, in my subconscious, I don't know, maybe some of these objects might start to uh, take on a new life. <laughs> uh, new South Wales is, uh, feels a very positive mm. state for culture at the moment. You know, Sydney Modern um, recently opened last year and, yeah, it seems like cultural infrastructure is 
has been a big priority, but um, we'll see how that plays out, I guess. Yeah. I have actually loved seeing Sydney with some of the redevelopment of industrial sites, um, like around Redfern, also mm-hmm. like Piedmont as well, like some of those sites that, that were previously government land that were just closed off to the public and now being reopened and being redeveloped and are coming becoming like really cool places to hang out and see mm. art and culture and, you know, get good food and wine and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, it's, it's good. Like Carriage Works is classic. Mm, exactly. And places like that, um, you know, um, White Rabbit, the uh, privately owned gallery mm. in Chippendale, an incredible old warehouse. But I think, yeah, it, it's positive for Sydney because unlike Melbourne, I think Melbourne's always been a lot more progressive culturally. Mm. And Sydney is, despite being seen as a very, you know, out there kind of city, it's actually very conservative, I think. And so... Mm. It's very heartening to actually see see these cult, cultural infrastructure projects um, um, happening because we're way behind Melbourne and even Brisbane, I think, on the you know on the map. But we're we're sort of inching forward now. So um, yeah, yeah, it is definitely happening, and uh, it's really exciting to go to to a city you've lived in like for a very long time um, mm. and going back there now and exploring places that I've never been before. So, um, Mm. yeah, it's exciting. We'll take a quick break here. I'm Yonah Zero. We're speaking with Michael Fitzgerald. Are you sick of your life and you want a new start? Does the burden of family weigh heavily on you? Are you craving a different sort of sea change? Well, if you are, why not join the BTZ submarine crew going to see the Titanic? There may be an implosion and you may die horribly, or you may end up with a brand new identity and living on a billionaire's island. Use promo code too fucking soon and you could get 10% off your voyage. We're back on Beyond the Zero, it's time for Michael's Desert Island Books. Oh, right, Desert Island Books, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, definitely I would take Ulysses there because I still haven't finished it. I think I'd still have to take Proust because I haven't still, I've only read the first volume, so I'd probably take Proust. Um, I would take, um, um, how many books can I take? You can take, you can take, up, we'll say 10, up to oh, 10. 10. Yeah. Oh, gosh, oh, yeah. gosh, um, okay. Um, and then I would take, um, I think I would have to then take something, um, something a little bit more 20th century creeping into 21st century. I would probably take, um, um, I think I'd take a book like probably Carpenteria, I think, Mm -hmm. a book, a really dense book like. Alexis Wright's book because um, I think that would I think that would just kind of get richer with rereading. Um, I would have to take some short stories, uh, so I would have to take so Mavis Glant, you know, New Yorker oh, writer. Yeah, and um, her her books are just uh, they're so muscular and so um, um, so elegant and so. Um, you know, the Canadian born living in Paris. Um, I'd also probably have to take Joan Didion um, just just because of her perfect sentences and her sharpness. I just finished reading Magical Thinking again, um, so that that probably would keep me keep me going. Maybe I'd have to take some poetry as well. Um, you know, maybe I'd have to take Sylvia Plath. I think because I just love Sylvia Plath, mm-hmm. and and sometimes um, sometimes I think poetry, and also probably would have to take a book of photography. I'd probably have to take Diane Arbus's uh, book of photography just to kind of keep my visual side of my brain going. Mm-hmm. So I think that would that would keep me pretty pretty satisfied. Brilliant. Okay. Well, congratulations again on late. I just loved it. And um, I highly recommend it. It's out through Transit Lounge. 
Before I let you go, do you want to tell us where we can catch up with you online and where we can get late and your other books? Uh, yeah, so I think um, so you can, um, through Transit Lounge, you can um, um, acquire these books, all three. Um, but pretty much everywhere, you know, I was at Berkelo the other day um, and signed some copies there. Um, Ariel Bookstore here in Sydney, they um, collaborated uh, with Transit Lounge for my launch. Mm -hmm. um, so pretty much pretty much everywhere I even saw readings. A friend in Melbourne was asking where she could buy late and apparently in all seven readings you can get mm -hmm. late. Um, and the and Avenue I as well down here? Yes, my parents bought their copy at, um, or a couple of copies at the Avenue Bookstore. That's their favourite bookstore. And then another mm -hmm. friend bought it at um, Hill of Content. So I know it's sort of, it's around there. It's around mm. and about. Yeah. Excellent. And, cool. Yeah. Yeah. And do, do you have an online presence? Do you have a website or anything like that? I don't. I don't. I'm. I'm sort of uh, been a bit remiss. I'm. I. I. I'm on Instagram, which is about the only social media i do i don't do facebook or um in instagram i like just because of its image based and mm. so i'm mf um dot novelist on instagram so i'm that's probably um my biggest presence well i should let you go thank you so much for oh. me. it's been a pleasure speaking with you Oh, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. And thank it was um, your questioning uh, was very insightful and um, and it's just refreshing to be able to engage in a conversation about some of the things in the book. Thanks once again to Michael Fitzgerald. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on X and Instagram at Beyond Zero Pod and we're on Blue Sky at Beyond the Zero. You can support this podcast by heading over to patreon.com and searching for Beyond Zero. We'll be back with the next episode very soon.